Our Better Business series is supported by the Farm Business Resilience Program through the Australian Government's Future Drought Fund and the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries. Across these next few weeks and episodes, we're going behind the scenes and chatting to some people who are making some serious impact and inroads across Australia. And they're not just limited to agriculture. Our aim is to uncover what's worked for them, discuss their learnings, and through their stories, provide ways for you to get some of those aha moments or things that might be able to benefit you, your business, and your community. G'day and welcome to this episode of our In The Know, On The Go podcast. Our Better Business series is designed to help look at business in a bit of a different way and take some of the learnings of different people from not just agriculture, but more broadly into how they've approached various aspects of their business and hopefully some of the key takeaways that you can take into your business and workplace as well. When we talk about succession planning and succession in business in agriculture, you're probably thinking just inside the farm gate and, well, you're right. However, the evolution of business across generations isn't necessarily unique to agriculture. So I thought we'd look at this one slightly differently. And in this episode, we sit down with Phil Cloris from Mungrel Boots. Now, Phil and I went to school and the story of Mungrel Boots is a fascinating one. Today, they're a fifth generation Aussie shoe business that was established in 1930. They began by selling handmade footwear through the Surrey Hills markets on weekends. And today, Phil works in the business alongside his uncle, cousins, father and grandfather. In the first episode, we get to know Phil a little bit and understand the structure of the business and who sits in what seats, how they bring their family values and ethos together, but also ensure that they can bring their non-family employees on that journey with them. We also understand how they've approached change across the generations and little things like craftsmanship and the skill set is actually a bit of a dying trade and so how they actually look to continue to evolve to stay modern but to continue to honour that legacy in how and why the business was created. Let's get into it. Today we've got Phil Cloris. Phil and I actually went to school together and I think knew little bits about mongrel boots throughout the time that we kind of knew it at school. But what's really cool, Phil, is we actually reconnected through Humans of Agriculture and your work with mongrel boots. We had a couple of giveaways and I know all of our staff were lucky enough to get a pair of mongrel boots. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no worries at all. Pleasure. And today we're keen to chat to you. And I think what will be really interesting is you're part of a business that's been five generations. It's been running as a family business here in Australia. And I think the synergies and learnings that you guys have and the insights that you can share from your family business will be really applicable to so many people in the agriculture community. So I'm excited to sit down today, mate. But firstly, how are you getting on and what's keeping you busy? Oh, not, you know, not too bad in the scheme of things, pretty well. Work, obviously, I've been working full-time since I graduated school with yourself at the end of 2010. So more or less full-time since then with a bit of uni in between. But yeah, these days, my job mainly consists of um, sort of two roles under the one umbrella of sales and marketing. So I'm the brand manager for our family company, Mungrel Boots. Uh, and then I also have a sales territory, which is uh, all regional. So in New South Wales, my territory, I got four different runs. So one's North Coast, Northwest, West, and then Riverina. So Usually every probably once every three to four weeks, I'll get out there and do a spend a week out in the bush and just sort of get around and press the flesh and uh, catch up with customers, show them new styles, you know, hand out promotional material, just sort of really maintaining the relationship, you know, with the customers and helping keep their mongrel sales strong in those particular territories. So it's always quite enjoyable to get out of Sydney for a week at a time. And when it comes to your sales meetings, is there an extra microscope put over you in just in terms of where the marketing budget's going? Oh, look, I feel like if the results are quite strong, 
you know, they, they don't sort of look too closely. But as lucky enough, like my old man's more or less always been off for, you know, for quite a while now in his latter years in the sales and marketing side of the business. So I sort of came in under that umbrella and was, uh, you know, more or less um, as I was learning all different jobs around the factory and in the office as well, while I was, I was studying at uni marketing and international business, I was, I think they refer to me as a bit of a marketing assistant. And then sort of a few years after I became full-time sort of more and more involved in the marketing itself and sort of allocating budgets and going through different mediums and stuff like that. So yeah, the the bills sometimes they raise a few eyebrows when they get pulled through, especially my grandfather who's eighty, just turned eighty five. But yeah, no, it's all it's all going well so far. So I haven't got myself in too much trouble. And you kind of mentioned it there. You've had a few different roles in the business, but when it came to leaving school, was it really obvious for you that you're going to end up back in the family business? And is that why you chose the uni degree of marketing and international business? Yeah, I think it was. Like to be honest, I do. I even got asked this question last week by a friend of mine. But it always felt very natural to go into the business. I grew up around it. You know, I used to be in there in school holidays. My dad's always, you know, he he left school when he was seventeen at the end of I think year eleven, and uh, he went straight into the business. So it just felt like the right thing to do. It just felt natural to me. Like I I never really had to think about it. If that makes sense, it just sort of. It felt like the thing to do. So, you know, I wasn't sort of coerced or forced into going, which people quite often ask me, I think as well, you know, now, but especially at that age, you you know, to a lot of boys, you know, your father's your role model. So, you know, you want to follow in his footsteps a little bit. And even as a kid, you know, my uncle worked in the business, still does, my grandfather. So not that I, you know, was scared of being a black sheep or doing something else. It just felt natural to me. It just even working there in the factory as a kid, I, I got quite interested in the brand and the business and the boots at quite a young age. So it just really felt like a, a natural progression, which, you know, I'm happy about because I, I do enjoy it. And I never sort of, you know, wish I became a doctor or a real estate agent or anything like that. I'm quite happy with my decision. Something I ask a lot of people in agriculture, but I'd love to know from your perspective, what's your earliest memory, like your earliest childhood memory in and around the factory or the business? Probably... I don't know how old, you know, probably when I was maybe in like seven, eight sort of region age wise, I do remember like occasionally I'd go out with dad on a Saturday if he needed to pick something up or maybe he left something in the office, like occasionally we'd go in there just briefly, but I'd always raid the stationary area. So there was a little section, uh, is it our old factory at Lidcombe? You know, I was sort of fascinated with markers and pens and because you're in primary school at that stage. And I think most of the time I'd go there. One thing that always stuck with me and even now is like when you walk in, even our factory now, but back then was always the smell of leather. So that was always like an association I had when I'd go to the factory. I'd really like recall that smell of leather. But yeah, one thing I loved to do for some reason at a young age was, you know, fill my pockets up with pens and uh, line textures and notepads and little, back then the business was all branded as Victor Footwear, but little Victor Footwear notes and, and stuff like that. That was probably like the things I remember the most. And then I also remember sort of walking around the factory when I was probably a similar age. If I went in there, I went in there on the occasional day if I was sick from school or dad had to take me somewhere or, you know, something like that. And it was quite small at the time. Again, maybe, you know, six or seven and all the ladies and people that work in the factory would be sort of smiling and waving and, you know, to see like a little, you know, one of the management like kids sort of walking around and in the factory. So I remember them all being very kind and like friendly and, and stuff like that used to be down on the factory floor and sort of seeing the equipment and again it's a bit of a sensory experience it's you know a bit of noise and smells and and leather and all the materials we use so seeing the whole business end to end now coming in into the business like 
Did you get to choose the different areas that you began to work in and did you have much of a say in it or was it kind of what was in the best interest or where there was a vacancy or opportunity open out in the business? Look, I think I did in a way, but I could tell from my old man there was always a desire for me to go into the sales and marketing side of the business. That's the side of the business dad's been on for quite a while now. Like he started down on the factory floor as a patent cutter and, and doing all those jobs and, and I did as well. Nothing as specific as that, like patent cutting and stuff. I was doing more general factory work for my first sort of four or five years and especially while I was studying at uni so you sort of get an understanding of you know how the boots made and all the different processes that go into it but I could tell there was always an interest or an inkling on my dad's part for me to go in the sales and marketing side of things so again it was something that I did I did want to go down that path anyway I was always quite interested in the business side of things and the marketing side and for so you know my I get told by my grandfather even now that apparently I'm a, I was a natural born salesman because when I was quite small I was relatively comfortable talking to people older than me or something like that he likes to remind me but our business traditionally as well has been very product focused and manufacturing focused as opposed to sales and marketing so I think dad sort of identified that as I come into the business he did want someone on the on the other side of the business to try and balance it out a little bit and give us a bit more of a better emphasis on the sales and marketing side of things and that's where the uni degree came into it as well Nobody before me in the business was university educated. So dad sort of said, look, if you want to come in, he wanted me to go to uni and get further education. And he sort of said, you know, that's not going to be, you're not just going to sort of walk in and, and get a managerial role and sit in an office. If you don't go to uni, you'll be in the factory for 15 or 20 years or something. So, so yeah, just all, all sort of came together. But yeah, there was never like a, this is what you're doing. I think there was a bit of a pushing me in a certain direction. And I'm sure worst case scenario, if I really dreaded it, I could have gone another way, but I was lucky my long-term vision of sales and marketing, I did enjoy. And before that, I was doing, you know, at one stage, I was doing returns. I remember tacking insoles, slipping uppers off last, putting uppers on the machine to mold soles, just just general sort of factory hand jobs and just learning the processes of how, to, how we make boots. So- hey, it's Nick here, sheep farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community well-being and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives, those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability, and help bridge the country-city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision, and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www.rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you. You kind of touched on it or gave us the little glance then, but so your aspirations, dreams, vision when you first joined the business, what were they and how have they either come to fruition or where are they kind of at today? Uh, when you mean aspirations... Like long, long term or? Yeah. Oh, look, I don't sort of have, like every day is a process. Every day you just sort of, the idea is just continue on building what the people before me and my the family members older than me that have built. I don't sort of have a huge end goal of we need to get to this, we do that. It's more just like keep improving, getting better in every areas, whether it's processes, manufacturing, marketing, obviously sales and market share. Like personally, that, that's a goal we always want to make more and more. But it's more just sort of nurturing, taking care of what we've got and just trying to improve it in small ways here or there, you know, ways that are sustainable. We want to be like a, 
a sustainable growth in you know year on year we don't want sort of have too many ups and downs in terms of sales and you know a bit sporadic so there's you know we just want to increase market share make a better product provide a better service stuff like that i don't sort of have anything too crazy or an end goal that i set my visions on yeah cool so let's touch on the business a little bit and can you explain because you mentioned before victor footwear but who is mongrel boots and what's the history behind the business yeah, so Mongrel Boots is a brand name for everything we make. The business is still called Victor Footwear. Um, so some people in the sort of 80s and 90s might be familiar with uh, Victor. We made some riding boots and also some work boots, but they're all branded as Victor. In the late 90s, we released a boot that was called the Mongrel. It was crossbred like a between a work boot and a safety jogger sort of style. So they came up with the idea uh, at the time, I think they wanted you know, Victor as a brand, it, sure, it's a it's a good word or it's a good brand, but it's not overly memorable or it's a bit generic in a way. It's a bit just, you know, like a name. So they wanted something that was sort of tying in our Aussie heritage uh, with the boots and the product. And it made sense being a crossbreed of, you know, between two sort of styles. Someone sort of came up with the idea of calling it the mongrel. So the boot went to market, still a Victor work boot, but known as the mongrel and the response from the customers in the market was very good for the name. Everybody seemed to love the term. And then it wasn't long after that, I'd say within 12 months, more or less, the decision came to rebrand everything as Mongrel and just moving forward, all the footwear and the accessories and everything we sold and branded was all Mongrel boots. So they sort of almost did a bit of a, a relaunch from Victor work boots to Mongrel boots. But yeah, that would have been early 2000s. And then ever since then, everything's just sort of been Mongrel. We've never released anything else under the Victor name. That's a huge kind of pivotal moment for the business to go through, like after 70 odd years in business to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like reinvent itself under a new brand name off the back of, I'll say, one campaign and success. Do you remember that time? And I guess reflecting on it now for the business, what has been said about that pivotal kind of moment? Oh, I think it really, like, to be honest, I think it's really set us on the path to where we are now and the success that we are enjoying and, and the popularity of the brand. Like, you know, like people either love it or hate it. It's polarizing in a way. Like we've even received a few uh, nasty emails over the years for people off, you know, just filling out bogus forms, just telling us we're calling us all sorts of names and saying we shouldn't be using the word mongrel, rah, rah. But overall, like people seem to love the terminology in the word. Like it is a quite a colloquial sort of term and it's very Australian. And, you know, I'm quite proud quite often when I go into a store as I tell people I'm the mongrel rep and especially in the bush, they all get a bit of a laugh out of that. But the brand has a good logo to go with it as well, like the growling dog, sort of cartoon, orangey sort of a dog. It's based off a cattle dog. And I feel like the name, the brand, like at the end of the day, you want to get noticed. Sure, not in a way that's too, I'm not sure what the word I'd use is, but not the way that's too out there, but just something that's a bit eye-catching and a bit sort of tongue-in-cheek to a certain extent without sort of offending someone too much. So yeah, ever since everything went mongrel, like in say uh, 99, 2000, just branding, marketing, brand awareness has really skyrocketed. And we've always been quite active since then with promoting the business, marketing the business. Like we are big believers now in in that side of things. Like we do have a great product and that does get you a long way there. But I really think to flank it with uh, proper branding and marketing and sales force, it, it really does wonders for the brand and, and sales. And so who's in, involved in the business today? We've got my dad who's there. He's been there his whole life. His brother, my uncle, got two cousins who are my uncle's children. And then uh, the director, who is uh, my grandfather. So he's still there five days a week. So he's been working in the business now since he was 17. And last Friday, he turned 85. Far out. So how are the roles split up? Or Obviously, you mentioned your grandfather's the director, but then also to how do you guys divide the business up between those family members, but also then other people as well? Yeah. So 
I don't know if there was a sort of, you know, how it all happened years and years ago, but like realistically the way it works is my grandfather's a director. Me and my dad are on the sales and marketing side of things. So dad's a sales and marketing director. I, I work sort of underneath him as a brand manager. And then my uncle and one of my cousins more or less head up the production side of things. So they have a lot to do with all the materials, the you know everything to do with the manufacturing of the boots because we do manufacture them here in Sydney. So his son Damien is uh, like a bit of a foreman who's down on the factory floor and like overseeing the production. And then Paul sort of is above him, like heading up production as a whole. And then he also has a daughter who works in the business that is like our office manager. So we have a team like sales support, uh, reception, and a few girls up in the office. Uh, So she, yeah, Elizabeth heads up the office sort of manager side of things and, and, and works with them. And for those people who are like me and have very little understanding that we're very familiar with getting a pair of boots off the shelf, what is actually involved in creating a pair of boots like here in Australia and how has that changed over the time the business has been running as well? Yeah, so we do use quite a lot of machinery, but especially the more early processing part of things with the cutting, stitching, lasting of uppers, that is all still done by hand. So pretty much, you know, we get packs of leather in, the leather's then cut on a beam press, like what we call clicking, which is when you use knives to cut out all the different patterns of the that goes into the upper. So you cut the leather... It goes through into stitching, so when it all gets stitched together by our machinists. After that, it'll go into what we call lasting. So that's more or less, it's when the the upper starts to take the form or the shape of a foot or a shoe. So you have something called a making last, which is like the form of, say, like a dummy foot, which the, the stitched upper will go on, and then you start to last around it. So use different machinery to sort of pull and shape and form the leather around that last, uh, and then you use like some cements. And then more or less, you can put it through a heat setter after that. You slip the last off and then you have a finished upper. And then probably one of the biggest changes in the business the last sort of 20, 30 odd years is the move towards direct injection soling. So we work with a German supplier called Desma, who are the world leaders in uh, direct injection molding. We have three of their machines in our factory, which are 230 stations and 124 station. But the upper will go on to the Desma direct injection molding machine. And it pretty much goes around. It goes through four or five different processes. But the end result is that the soling compounds, so polyurethane and TPU, it gets molded onto the upper. So it's not like an older fashioned sort of uh, dress shoe where it's a, a stitched on sole or what they'd call a Goodyear welt. We're actually directly attaching the soles to the uppers. Yeah, wow. Obviously, the technology is pretty impressive, but in the sense of is there much wastage or like seconds that come out of that? Oh, look, ideally not. You're always going to get some sort of human error or, you know, the other thing is we're dealing with leather, which is a natural product. So you do get some marks on skins or some, you know, little defects and stuff like that that sometimes are hiding under the surface. But we don't get a huge amount of wastage in our production. Like with the leather, the idea is with clicking is you want to minimize your wastage. So you're trying to interlock all those knives and patterns as close as you can to each other. And it more or less ends up like the way if you see a skin that's, you know, being clicked well, it, it looks almost like, uh, you know, Swiss cheese where it's just all these holes and they're just sort of held together with tiny little pieces where they've interlocked all the knives in. So ideally not. Also in the molding, it, it is quite efficient. You only get a small, like a little flange where the, the PU and the TPU midsole and outsole meet and that gets trimmed off. And so obviously craftsmanship was a huge thing over like historically in Australia, but how do you guys go finding those people with those that skill set that you need to really continue to make the boots to the quality that you guys need? Yeah, so it's definitely not easy. To be honest, it's getting harder and harder. Uh, we are finding, like even for general factory hand jobs, like the quality of labour that's walking through the door now is just not what it used to be. But especially like clickers, machinists, 
real boot making skills are very, very hard to come by. So to be honest, there is a large part of our workforce that is made up of immigrants and who have come to Australia and do have those skill sets from you know their experiences overseas. And to a certain extent as well, there is part of our workforce who has been with us for you know 20 or 30 years that I guess you would define as aging. So we are really struggling at the moment with finding employees that do have those skills because there is not, you know, unfortunately, there's not a huge amount of people that sort of leave school now and say, you know, I want to go become a bootmaker or there's no courses for it here. So, you know, where back in the day, my dad and my uncle went to what they call tech, which I believe is TAFE now. And, you know, you did a bootmaking or a footwear technicians course that went for several years, one or two nights a week. And, you know, that's when we had some degree of industry here for, you know, textiles, clothing and footwear. So we do struggle with it. We do have quite a, a large part, especially the more skilled part of our workforce that has been with us a long time. But yeah, we are noticing now it is getting harder and harder to come by people with the, those skill sets. So at the moment we are doing okay, but you know it is hard to say what you know what 10, 15, 20 years down the track what that looks like because there, you know there is a bit of a negative stigma as well towards working in a factory. You know, like I said, there's not many people who sort of that's their plan long term when they leave school. So. You know, we'll know in the future, but yeah, at the moment we are okay, but it's definitely not getting easier. Like there's not sort of people lining up to come to the door and say, hey, I want to be a clicker or I want to be a, a machinist or a tow laster or something like that, which is unfortunate for us. Well, and I think it probably comes back to, and I think this is where the farming industry is so similar in the sense of what you guys are doing. It's this constant evolution that's needing to happen as the world kind of changes and the way that, yeah, I guess the business ran one, two, three, four generations ago is different because the needs and the way the world actually is working and people are looking for work changes as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I hear stories, you know, of our factory in the 60s and 70s. A lot of the workers were actually husband and wife. A lot of them were Italian, Greek, other nationalities like that. And over the years, you sort of, if you look back through the records, you see uh, different sort of waves of ethnicities that have worked in the factories at different times. But yeah, back then it was very different, you know, to the world we're operating in now. So yeah, hopefully it doesn't impede us or really stop us eventually from making boots in Australia because we are very passionate about that. We have been making boots here since uh, 1930. And I think that ethos and culture does come from my grandfather. He's a big uh, supporter of Australian made and, and not only just making the boots here for the sake of it, but he really gets a kick out of employing Australians. And that is the main reason we do it. And has been nice during COVID to see a little bit of a pushback to really supporting Australian made goods. There's a bit of a wake up call for a lot of people and you know, anti-sentiment for certain countries around. So we did see a, a renewed push and support for Australian Made, which also led us to rolling out quite a large campaign that ran for a couple of years called the Made Down Under campaign and really highlighted and put a spotlight on the fact that we are not just Australian owned, but are Australian made. And, you know, we just really hope moving forward that that, that does stick around because there's more or less only two workboot manufacturers that are left here in Australia and, and we're one of them. That's really cool. And I think that there's that huge push of what really was highlighted through that period was just when it comes to manufacturing that how little of it is still actually done in Australia. And as you kind of say, people would walk past. Yeah, look, not much at all. And and you can understand why, but, you know, our desire is to sort of go against the grain a little bit and, and try and resist those pressures to move offshore. And so far, we have been quite successful with doing that. And we found throughout COVID too, our stock was very good. Our material supplies were very good. And we heard sort of stories about some of our competitors not having boots or certain styles in stock for, you know, three, four months at a time. So we did quite well out of it with the having the production local. So I think in this first episode, what we were trying to cover there with Phil was a little bit about him so you can get to know him, but also about their business. I think a big part, especially in family businesses, is how when you need to rely on other employees, do you build that culture and inviting aspects, which 
people can come and be part of your business and actually come on that journey with you. One, it makes your business better, but two, it actually helps people fulfill their purpose as well uh, for the benefit of themselves and how they show up to work, but also for your business. This series is supported by the Farm Business Resilience Program through the Australian Government's Future Drought Fund and the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries. And our aim is to sit down and chat with various people who have lived experience in business management. Through their stories, it's our aim to share their learnings, their approaches, and how they've supported developing themselves, their businesses, and their teams.